All right, everybody ready to study the book of Revelation? Yeah. All right. I'm not. No, I'm just teasing. I really am. So let's let's get into it tonight. Revelation chapter 2. Where we're going to begin tonight, Revelation chapter 2. While you're turning, a real sort of quick dis- disclaimer. Um, I, I, I thought of this as I was leaving last Tuesday night. You know, we do tackle a lot of heavy stuff, and, and, and that's what the mind's all about. And, and we get deep. And there's a lot of questions, and there's a lot of stuff that we wrestle with. We, you know, we have those kind of questions and discussions that seems like every week we're in here. And I guess one of the things that I just was really sensitive about, and, and I just want to communicate to you, first of all, you are a, a lovely, wonderful group to teach every week, and I, I just cannot say that enough. But I, I hope that you will look past, and I'm sure that most of you do, this feeble human instrument that's up here trying to communicate the mind of God, okay? Because there is no way that this feeble human instrument is going to adequately communicate the mind of God the way it should be. And so I hope, and again, it's my hope and prayer that that God is able to, you know, block me and all of my mistakes and frailty and all that and un- lack of understanding and be able to communicate his mind to you, irregardless of who the instrument is. And I just want to say that, because I think that's important, okay? I, I just, you know, yeah, I study, yeah, I pray, yeah, I ask God for his help, and I believe he does, but again, I'm, I'm just a frail human being that just needs to still grow myself in my understanding of God's word, and I'm growing all the time and learning all the time, and so please, I, I guess... Don't, don't let my lack of being able to help you understand something or explain something totally, whatever, to keep you from continuing to do your own search and ask God to give it to you. Because God can do what, obviously, I can't do and go way beyond that. So that's the disclaimer for tonight, okay? Look past here, okay? Tonight we're going to start... In my favorite section of the book of Revelation, it is Jesus' message to the seven churches. And by way of introduction, we sort of talked about this last week, about the fact that these messages are applicable to the church down through history. I think that's why Jesus picked seven churches, and in his wisdom he picked these particular churches, because his message to these churches, we could apply to the church at any time in history. And we're going to see that as we study these churches, that this is very practical and very applicable to where we have been as, as believers in Christ and where we, we are going. Uh, the other thing I want to point out, and I don't want to take a lot of time to review back to chapter 1, because I've shared with everybody, look, I know all of you cannot come every week. So each message is built to stand alone, to where you don't have to be here every week in order to get the most out of it. But I do want to take a quick review and remember what this is all about. This book is not primarily about future events and prophecy and all those things that most of us are curious about. This book is predominantly portraying for us the glory of Jesus Christ. It is, in the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this entire book is going to paint him in all of his glory. 
Now, certainly it's going to be in connection with future events and judgment and all of that kind of stuff, but we've always got to go back to the fact that primarily the central figure of this book is Christ, the center of our focus needs to be Christ, and remember that it is the glorified Christ, the one that we saw described for us in chapter 1 that we need to constantly come back to because our concept of God is so vitally important to our everyday Christian life. Big God, that even if we have big problems, we know that a big God can handle it. Small God, if my God is this small, then the things that I'm going through and the big problems that I have, he can't deal with it. So I'm not going to take them to him because he can't deal with it. So the bigger my God is, the better for me. And one of the things that the book of Revelation is going to try to do for us is expand... Our view of God. Sort of going along exactly with what Pastor Lynn said Sunday in his message. Don't put our God in a box. Because we're not going to be able to understand him. Let him go. Let him go outside of your box. He's way bigger than any box we could ever fit anyway. He's more majestic than that. And let God be God. And let him just be big. And we're not going to understand him. Again, as I shared in this class, if we understood everything about God, we would be God. And we're never going to be God. Okay, there's always going to be that separation between God and everything else that he created. So let's remember that as we approach the book of Revelation tonight. As I shared, not only the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible was written about the things that we need to know. Not that all the things we want to know. So we're not always going to have all of our questions answered as we study the Bible. But the things that we need to know to honor and glorify God, to get the most out of life, to experience the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give us, it's in this book. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, we come to the first message from Jesus to a church in Ephesus. Just a little bit of background about the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a great commercial center of the ancient world. It was a crossroads. Because it was a commercial center, it was... You know, a lot of different roads were intersecting in Ephesus, so there was a lot of traffic through Ephesus. So obviously, anything that that took hold in Ephesus was going to go all over the ancient world because people were passing from this, you know, side of the ancient world to this side and everything through Ephesus. Ephesus was also the home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple to Diana was found in Ephesus. And if you ever you know, get a chance to you know, study the seven wonders of the ancient world, then you'll come across the Temple of Diana. It was this beautiful, you know, unbelievable temple to Diana there in Ephesus. So, Jesus sends this message to the church at Ephesus, and he writes in uh, Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, as well as your labor and steadfast endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have put to test those who refer to themselves as apostles, but are not, and have discovered that they are false. If you skip over then also to verse 6, he commends them because he says, you have their... This going for you, you hate what the Nicolaitans practice, practices I also hate. Now I want to go back to the very beginning in chapter 2 verse 1 there and remind ourselves that Jesus is saying, I have the seven stars in my hand and I have a very firm grasp on them. 
And we saw last week that the seven stars were these seven angels of the seven churches. And I shared with you that I believe that these were the human messengers that were going to take these messages back to the church. Remember, God wants his church to know his truth. And that's why he is sending this to his church. That's why he wants us to have the Bible as the very center of what we do in the church. Because the church is to be the pillar and ground of God's truth. And he is reminding us there, I think both a word of comfort and warning, that I have these messengers in my hand and I have a firm grasp on them. Again, you can take that two ways. First of all, that means that there's sort of the hand of protection there. He's got his hand wrapped around these messengers who are taking these messages back to the churches. And nothing's going to happen to them because God has a firm grasp on them. And they're going to be able to get back to each of their destinations because God is going to protect them. But I think also it reminds us that because he has a firm grasp on these messengers, that it's also a word of warning saying, remember... This is my church. I am the head of the church, as the Bible teaches. Christ is the head of the church. And therefore, we as members of his church need to defer to the head. And so he's reminding us of his authority here in chapter 2, verse 1. But he's also reminding us, I believe, here of throughout this message of his sufficiency. And I want to remind us all of that tonight. He is not only the author of of this message to the church at Ephesus. He is saying, I am the answer to every problem that's going to come up in the church. I am your answer to every problem that's going to come up in your life because remember who I am. I am this great big God that was described for you in chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I was dead, now I'm alive forevermore. You and I have nothing to be afraid of because Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ, is in control And he's reminding us again of that authority and that sovereignty by saying to us, I have the messengers that's going to take these messages to the churches in my hand, and I have a firm grasp on them. Also notice at the end of verse 1, he reminds us that he walks amongst his church. He says, I am the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And at the end of chapter 1, we saw that the seven golden lampstands are the churches that he's writing to. And again, we saw that lampstands are a very accurate description of the church because we are to be the light to the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5.14 to believers in him, you are the light of the world, so let your light shine. Cornerstone Christian Fellowship is to be, in a sense, a lighthouse, a lampstand in this community here in Chandler, Arizona. Everywhere you and I go as individual believers, we are to let our light shine and be a light everywhere we go. We are to be a lampstand. Now, one of the things I want to point out about this that I think is important to tie this in with the Old Testament, why use the term lampstand? In the Old Testament, and even a few times in the New Testament, one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit is oil. And obviously, what goes into a lampstand to keep it burning? Oil. And so one of the things that we are reminded of is we can burn more brightly and be a greater testimony to Christ if we allow the Holy Spirit to be in control and let Him work through us, both individually and as a church. That's part of allowing, in a sense, that power source to always be lighting us and empowering us. It's sort of you know, the same principle of just having that fuel 
constantly in my life. Well, the Holy Spirit is my fuel to allow my light to burn brightly and to burn effectively in this world. And one of the encouraging things is this. Let's remember something. No matter how dark the world is, all the darkness in the world can't even extinguish one candle. And so don't, don't diminish and don't... There, there are no small people or small places or small ministries in God's eyes. And you may only look at your life as one candle, but remember, while that candle's burning, if the rest of the world was dark, it still could not extinguish that one candle. That's how powerful light is. Darkness can be all around it, but that light is still going to burn. And Jesus is reminding his church, you are my lampstand. You are my light. You are to let your light shine and allow the Holy Spirit to come up through your life and to to really energize you and and to help you burn brighter. And then, again, I want to point out the fact that he walks amongst the churches. So he, he knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in the church. Not just because he's omniscient, as he's going to say at the beginning of verse 2, I know, I know because I have perfect knowledge, but he also is active amongst his church. He walks amongst the church. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, look at verse 13, where God is in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus Christ, in the the glorified vision of Christ in chapter 1, in verse 13, it says that one like the Son of Man is in the midst of the lampstands. So remember something, he's right there, he's right in the midst of his church, he's watching everything that goes on, he is is moving around his church, He's, he's wanting to make sure that everything is okay, and he's also, as he's moving around his church, saying to everyone in the church, I'm the answer, I'm your sufficiency, I'm your power, I'm your strength, just call upon me and I will be there. The sad thing is, if... When we get to the end of the message to the seven churches, you remember the picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking? He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear and open up the door, I'll come in. The sad thing is that if you see that in the context of what he's talking about, he's talking about knocking at the door of the church. Isn't it sad to think that Jesus has to knock at the door of his own church to get in? Wow! But it's true. Because many times, you know... There are many churches that assemble together, but do they really have Christ, their head, at the very center of all they're doing? Is it about exalting Christ? Is it about teaching about Christ? Is it about making Christ preeminent in people's lives? Or is it about building themselves up or promoting something else or whatever? And Jesus is saying, hey, will you let me in? You know, I'm the one that's building my church and I'm the head of the church. Can I come in? You know? And we have to remember that as well. You know, one of the sobering things that we have to be reminded of as believers in Jesus Christ is, are we doing, back to the energizing power of the Holy Spirit, are we doing what we're doing for God in our own power and strength? Or are we doing it under the power and strength of the Holy Spirit? I mean, one of the sobering things to, to think about is even how much ministry in a church like Cornerstone takes place in our own power and strength, in our own intellect in our own understanding, rather than relying upon the Holy Spirit to produce the ministry and the work. Think about that. That's, you know, how do we do that? Well, you do it by becoming dependent upon the Holy Spirit, not trying to, you know, always do it in our own power and our own strength. That's going to be a key. We're going to come back to that point just a little bit later. I just want to move on just a little bit further, and I'm going to stop for any comments or questions. In verse 2, then, he begins to tell the church at Ephesus, I know... Your ministry. I know what you're doing. 
And one of the things you're going to find in every one of the messages to these churches is this pattern. He's going to start out by reminding us who he is, and that description of him is going to go back to the vision of him in chapter 1. And then he's going to say, I know these good things that you're doing, but then most of the time he's going to say, but, but I have some things that you need to work on. Now, the reason I want to share with you that pattern is because that's a really important pattern. Commendation comes before correction. In other words, Jesus commends his church for what they're doing right before he goes into correcting them. And the reason why that's an important pattern is that's the way you and I should be. That's the way you and I should be as parents if we have children. I should be telling my children what they're doing right before I tell them what they need to correct. As a business person, as a person who works with other people, I'm going to get way further ahead with them. They're going to be more receptive to what I have to say if it's correcting at all what's going on if I commend them first for what they're doing right before I correct them. And that's what Jesus did with his church. He said, look, I don't want to come in here and just start right off on the negative here, some things that you need to deal with. I want to commend you for what you're doing right and what you're doing well. And Jesus is our ultimate example. And I think that's a great example that you and I need to remind ourselves. A very practical thing that we can put into practice every day of our lives. Commendation before correction. And Jesus then says this. I know your works. That word work there speaks about energy. That's the original language. You got a lot of energy, he's telling the folks in Ephesus. Man, you're always busy. Energy. And it takes energy to serve the Lord. Some of us need more energy. Some of us need a little decaf rather than a little energy. But some of us have the energy. That's okay, all right? It's important to be energized to do the will of God. But then he also says, I also know your labor. That means that they were toiling in the ministry for the Lord to the point of being weary. Wow. You know, that's pretty impressive. They're full of energy to do the work of the Lord. They have been involved in ministry to the point where sometimes they are weary. And then he says, I also know, verse 2, your steadfast endurance. Hey, you're hanging in there. You're not getting weary and doing well. That's good, and we saw last week, where does our endurance come from? It comes through our personal relationship with Christ and through our prayer life. Jesus said in Luke 18, men ought always to pray and not to faint, lose heart, give up. Keep praying, and you'll keep enduring. So they have all this going for them. In fact, notice, he goes on to say, and you cannot tolerate evil. I like that. Now, that's especially an important message in the world in which we live, where it is politically incorrect to be intolerant. And yet Jesus is commending his church for being intolerant of a few things. Okay? And that's where the balance comes in. Certainly, we're to be tolerant of certain things. And we're certainly not to allow things that really don't matter for eternity to come between us or anyone else. That's true. But when it comes to things that do matter, when it comes to key doctrinal issues that can make a difference between someone ending up for eternity without Christ or somebody, you know, having to struggle with something that they really wouldn't have to be struggling with, then it's time to not be so tolerant. 
And Jesus is commending them because they cannot tolerate evil because he knows that this evil that he's going to begin to talk about here spreads like cancer. It spreads like gangrene. And so the evil that I tolerate is going to be passed to somebody else and it's going to affect other people. One of the things we have to realize is that my sin doesn't just affect me. It affects everybody around me that comes in contact with me. Okay? And the same thing is true for all of it. And the same thing is true for a church. We tolerate wrong doctrine. We tolerate sin. Just think about how many lives, especially in a church this size, is going to be negatively affected if we tolerate wrong doctrine and, and sin in the midst of the church. So that's why Jesus then commends them if you move on. He says, you have even put to the test those who refer to themselves as apostles but are not and have discovered that they are false. Jesus says, you know one of the things I like about you? Is that you're putting to the test these people who go around saying, I got a word from God. And he said, you're testing them. You're testing them to make sure that they are a spokesperson for God. Because here's what the Bible teaches us. Keep your finger there and turn to 1 John chapter 4. Just go back a few books from the book of Revelation to 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. And notice what John writes here. Very important verse. Especially for us in our day and age. It's only going to get worse, not better. Because the Bible says that there are many false prophets who've gone out into the world. And false prophets and false teaching is only going to continue to increase until the coming of the Antichrist. So folks, it's only going to get more cloudy out there for people, not more clear. That's why we have to be very clear about what we believe and why we believe it. Because the waters out there in this world today are very muddy because there's going to be a continual increase of false doctrine and false teachers out there spreading things that aren't true. And my friends, as we all know, it's a lot harder to detect false doctrine if you use something like this to illustrate it. And this is the way I hold it. It's a lot harder to detect something bad for me if in a whole gallon of milk somebody puts a couple drops of poison rather than I look over here on this shelf and on this shelf is this this bottle with this yucky liquid and it's got this skull and crossbones on it and it says, caution, poison. Well, obviously I'm going to stay away from that. That's just obvious. But I might not necessarily stay away from the milk that's got a couple drops of poison. And that's the way Satan works. You know, it's not that he comes at people and goes, I'm the evil Satan and I'm here to try to deceive you. No, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and how he dealt with Eve, he tries to come at us with just a little bit of error mixed in with a lot of what sounds good. And that's bad. Because just like the couple drops of poison in the milk, we're still going to be effective, affected negatively by it. That's part of the reason why it's so important that you and I become part of things like the mind, a Bible study like this. Because throughout our days together in the mind, we're going to have a better grasp of God's Word so that those couple drops of, of bad stuff that can be bad for us and passed on to other people we'll be able to detect because we're going to know. We're going to know what the truth is. Because we're going to have a handle on the Word of God and we're going to continue to grow in our understanding of the Word of God so that we're going to be better able to detect that. So that's why in 1 John 4, 1, John says, Dear friends... Do not believe every spirit. 
Just what Jesus said. You are testing the spirits to determine if they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, it's part of our responsibility as a church and as individual believers to test everything that we hear. Because the Bible is teaching us that everything that we hear, everything that's ever been communicated from the beginning of time only really has two sources. It is either coming from the Spirit of God, and it's the Spirit of truth, or it's coming from the Spirit of deceit and the Spirit of lies, and it's coming from that side. That, that's it. I mean, it, it's that black and white. Everything you and I hear... Everything you and I are confronted with in this world, we can trace back to one of two sources. It's either coming from God, or ultimately it's coming from Satan. And that's why the Bible says we've got to test the spirits. We've got to be careful that what we are listening to and what we are hearing is truly what God is saying, you see. And that's why I've shared with you in the past, and that's why the Bible says, don't take my word for it. Pastor Lynn would say, don't take his word for it. Ron would say, don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody's word for it. You go home with your Bible, and you study it for yourself. That's why the Bereans were commended in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 11, because even when the apostle Paul preached to them, he says, you know what you did? You didn't take my word for it. You went home, and you studied it for yourself and came up to your own convictions, which is what it's really all about. We as teachers can help unlock some understanding in God's word, but please don't believe something and, and build a, a conviction about something just because some pastor or somebody said it. You have to come up with your own convictions. That's why I'm so strong about what I believe and what I teach here. Because these are convictions that I've developed over years and years and years of studying God's Word. And yeah, I'm, I'm strong about them because they're my <laughs> convictions. But I haven't, I'm not piggybacking off of what my mom and dad taught me or what somebody else taught me. These are the things I believe because I've come to believe them through my own personal study of God's Word. Test the spirits. Test the spirits. And be careful of those few drops of poison in the midst of that gallon of milk. Now let's go back then to another uh, couple verses. Go back to 2 Corinthians because I want to keep here for a moment because again, this is so important. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning at verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13. Now this passage also teaches us about how important it is that we know the word of God because Satan and his emissaries are not again going to come to us saying, I'm Satan and I'm here to try to deceive you. No. Notice what Paul says. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will correspond to their actions. Whoa. That's a passage we need to pay attention to. Satan is going to come at you not as Satan, but as an angel of light. Good! Because he wants to deceive. That's, that's one of his main strategies. Deception. That's why the Antichrist, as we get a little bit later into our study of Revelation, some people want to, how can the world follow the Antichrist? Because the Bible says they're going to be deceived. They're going to be deceived by his power. 
by his lying wonders, by the miracles that he can do. And because most human beings judge things externally rather than internally, they're going to say, this must be the power of God, because nobody could do that unless God was behind it. And the Bible clearly teaches that Satan is a very powerful being, and he has the ability to do false miracles. You remember all the way back in the book of Exodus, when, when God, or through the power of God, Moses turned his staff into a, a serpent? Well, what did the magicians of Egypt do? Same thing. Satan is always counterfeiting what God does. That's why we've got to be careful. That's why it's so important to be part of a church like Cornerstone that teaches the Word of God, that has things like the mind where we can learn the Word of God, and a church that encourages you to study the Word of God on your own because we need to study the Word of God because there's false prophets out there today and a lot of false teaching. It needs to be tested, and the only way we're going to be able to test it is if we know the Word of God or we're going to get duped. We're going to get fooled because Satan is going to come to us disguised as an angel of light. He's going to look pretty good. But in the midst of looking 90% pretty good, there's going to be that 10% of error and untruth and unrighteousness that we need to be aware of that in a sense our spiritual radar goes up and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And that's why it's not only important to know the Word of God, but let me give you an encouragement. Because again... We're going to be always growing in our understanding of the Word of God. We're never going to get to the point where we know everything. But that's why. The neat thing is, even though we should continue to grow, that's why God gave every believer in Christ the Holy Spirit to live within. Because if we don't know that particular passage or verse or whatever, don't, don't get worried about that. Keep growing. You know, Certainly don't lose your motivation to keep understanding the Word of God. But if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will say, Whoa, whoa, don't, don't listen to that, that's wrong. And he will give you a, an unrest. He will give you a lack of peace. One of my favorite verses is Colossians 3.15. It says, Let the peace of God rule in your heart. That word rule there means umpire, arbitrate, help you make a decision. When you have a, a doubt about something, that's probably coming from the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit... But if you have a perfect peace about something, then that's God's confirmation that it's from God. And go ahead. The Holy Spirit's not giving you any trouble believing that. Just like if you leave here, the Holy Spirit will be saying to you as you leave here tonight, either, yeah, that guy, he was, he was pretty on most of the time, or don't listen to that guy. He's a crackpot. <laughs> I mean it. That, that's just the way it is. That's the way it should be. Because the Holy Spirit, if you have Him, is going to... Con yeah, that's right. That's, that's right on, you see. And that's part of the great thing why God gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us the church. He gave us the Word. So that, again, we're fully equipped to deal with anything that we're going to face in this world. The magnificent, glorified Christ is sufficient. He's the answer to everything we're ever going to face. But it is our job and responsibility to test. To test to test, to test. Now let me go back to Revelation just real quick and then I'm going to stop for a moment. So in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, You have put to the test those who refer to themselves as apostles. But again, obviously they weren't true apostles. And you've discovered that they are false. So they went through 1 John 4, 1. They went through 2 Corinthians. They understood, oh, wait a minute, we've we got to put these people to the test. And then in verse 3, he says, And I am also aware that you've persisted steadfastly, 
enduring much for the sake of my name, and you've not grown weary. So again, in the first three verses, he's reminding them of who he is, the glorified Christ, he's sufficient, he's their answer, and he's commending them for the things that they're doing good before he makes a really important correction in the life of this church in Ephesus. And before we get to that, verse 4, I wanted to open it up for any comments or questions. Yes. So, so to test the, uh, the Spirit, it says in 1 John that you should find out if they believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, and that's the main That's one of the tests, is, is what Christology we would call within theology. What do they think about Christ? It, obviously, do they think Christ was just a man? Hmm. Was he the Son of God? Okay. Yeah, so obviously when we are testing things, like in the Old Testament, one of the ways you proved whether a prophet was a true prophet or a false prophet was, was he ever wrong? You see, unlike today with all these psychics and whatever that you got going on around here, you know, they can be, they can be maybe hit, hit it right every once in a while. But are they 100% right all the time? You see, the test for an Old Testament prophet, a prophet from God, was that they had to be 100% right all the time or else you had the freedom to stone them. Well, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty good, you know. 100% right. Why? Because God says, I'm 100% right because I'm God. And anybody that's going to speak for me to be one of my prophets, they're going to be 100% right or else you can mark it down. They're not sent from me. So they. the other thing is, like you were saying, Christian, we need to compare what these prophets, pastors, priests, ministers, people on television are saying and compare it to the Word of God. Does it line up with what God says? You know, is somebody getting up and saying, you shouldn't eat certain foods, you know? Christians should stay away from certain foods. And Paul says right in Timothy, no. God blesses all food. If you have somebody telling you to stay away from certain foods, that doesn't line up with what the Bible says. So again, the more we understand the Bible, the more we're going to be able to put to test the things that we hear from radio and television and in the print. It's like I tell people, look, just because it's called a Christian bookstore like Berean or Amazing Grace doesn't mean everything in there lines up with what the Bible says. I can tell you as a pastor for 21 years that I've went into Christian bookstores all over this country and I have looked at books off the bookshelf in Christian bookstores and what they were teaching was far from what that book's teaching. Far from. You can't, you just can't, again, well, it's in a Christian bookstore. It must be right. No, 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 no. You see, there are false prophets out there. There are false teachers out there. They disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. We've got to be careful. Now, certainly, Christian, you brought up the, I think that the primary thing, going back to tying it into Revelation, is what do they think about Christ? Because it, that's going to be the real key. You know, what do they think about Christ? That's really going to hit you real quick. You know, if, if someone comes to me and says, you know, I think Jesus Christ was the Son of God who died for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead... We might disagree over some other things, but boy, he's my brother. She's my sister in Christ, you know. That, that's, you know. And again, that's the things we need to tolerate, because we're not going to agree on all the side peripheral issues and preferences. But some of these major doctrines, like is Jesus the Son of God or not, oh man, yeah. I can't tolerate that. Now, that doesn't mean I can't love somebody that doesn't think Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I, I need to love them. But what I'm saying is, I can't tolerate calling them up and saying, 
uh, I can't be in the mind to teach tonight. Could, could you come in and teach for me? You know, it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. You just come in and teach whatever you like. And we can't do that. We can't tolerate that. That's why, like Pastor Lynn, it, you, yeah, he put me through the rigors before they brought me on here. Because obviously that was... He's ultimately responsible for the, as the lead pastor. He's ultimately responsible for what's taught in this church before God. We can't have some crackpot coming into his church and just teaching stuff that doesn't line up with the Bible. You know, he's ultimately responsible for that. See, so you know, it's important. We have to watch who our teachers are. You know, and we have to be careful of that. The Bible says in the book of Jude, that little book right before Revelation, that one of the signs of the last days is there's going to be false teachers who creep into the church who creep into the church and who, who have teaching ministries in the church. Therefore, the battleground for truth is not going to be between the church and the world. It's actually going to be getting inside the church where the battleground for truth takes place. Because there's Satan is going to plant false teachers inside the church. That's why you know, there are many seminaries and Bible colleges all over this country that literally are splitting down the middle because the battleground for truth is taking place on Bible colleges and seminaries all over this place. It just is happening. It's a spiritual warfare going on for truth. And my friends, truth is very, very important. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we need to have that truth as part of our life. All right. Anything else? Yes. Um, you were saying that Yes, in the book of James, it says that the demons believe and tremble. And what that means is they have an orthodox theology. <laughs> Obviously, they believe in God. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they choose not to obey. And that's a very good verse to bring out because again we have to be careful and discerning that a person can say that but again how then are they living so then you have to go beyond sometimes the teaching and look at the life style because like you brought out demons know that Jesus Christ is the son of God I mean when he was here on earth and he was casting them out they're like, oh the son of God I mean they know who he is they were in heaven with him <laughs> you know so yeah, they're very orthodox in their theology, but they have chosen not to follow and not to obey. So yeah, that's a good point to bring up. But that goes a little bit further down the road. Uh, but I think that most of the time, not to discount that, most of the time you can test the false prophets and false teachings simply by allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you and by knowing the Word of God and not getting beyond the lifestyle thing. Yeah, but that's good. Good point to bring up. Yeah. Now, he has one thing against this church, but it's a major thing. In verse 4, he says, look. He says, this is what I, I have against you. You have departed from your first love. And if you read on, and we're going to read on in just a moment, he's saying, do you realize, folks, in Ephesus, and this is a message to us today as well, that's why we can, he's saying, all this work, that you guys are doing all that energy back to the work and the in, being you know weary because you're doing so much ministry. He says, all that testing and all that orthodox theology is no substitute for loving me. 
In fact, if you go on and read, you realize that he's saying, if you don't start putting me first and my love relationship with you first, all those other things aren't going to matter, and I'm going to come and remove your lampstand and your witness from the city of Ephesus. Because you see, all the work and all the ministry that we do is to be born out of our love relationship with the Lord Jesus. You see, so many folks out there working and they're ministering and they're serving God, but there's no real love relationship there. And Jesus is saying, I'd rather have your love first. And then if I've got your love and we're falling in love with each other and we're developing that love relationship with each other, the work's going to come, the ministry's going to come, the service is going to come. But don't leave your first love. Jesus needs to be our first love. And the Bible says that anything that comes before Jesus in our life is an idol. And anything that comes before Jesus in our life as, a, as the love of our life is something that he's going to continually deal with us about because he is to be our first love. Another interesting thing about this verse is the word deserted. It means a gradual departure. Like many, we don't wake up one day you know, and say, oh, I'm just turning my back on Christ. It doesn't work that way. It's a gradual, slow departure. As a pastor, too, in dealing with marriages and stuff, it's not like you know a husband or wife wakes up one day and says, I'm going to divorce my husband or wife. No. It's a gradual, emotional detachment and separation over a period of months or years that brings you to that point. And that's what God is saying here. It's not that we wake up one day and all of a sudden we were over here with Christ and we were madly in love and we were burning with a spiritual fervor and fire and we were on fire for God and we were serving God and we were loving His Word and we were praying and we were in fellowship with other Christians and all of a sudden we wake up the next day and we want nothing to do with it. No, it doesn't work that way. It is a gradual departure and that's what we've got to all be careful of. That even if you can say, I'm in love with Christ tonight, that we don't leave here realizing this. Yeah, we're in love with Christ now, but if we don't continue to work on that relationship, just like we need to work on all of our relationships in order to keep them strong and growing, that we will continue to, to or start to slide down that slippery slope of gradually departing from Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. I think I've used this illustration last year when we were talking about Philippians, but I love the ocean. I love to you know, swim and all that. And every once in a while I get to the ocean... I used to, you know, get one of those inner tubes or, you know, those rafts or whatever and just go out and just float. And, and I, I, you know, once you're out there, you could look on the shore and you could see where your family or friends were and you sort of got oriented. And you'd lay back and you just, all of a sudden, you'd get lost in the, the warmth of the sun and the waves sort of bobbing you up and down or whatever. And if you close your eyes and you just drifted for a while, guess what? You'd open up your eyes and you'd look up on the shore. It's like, where are they at? Yeah. And you'd realize you'd floated like a half a mile or a mile down the ocean, and it didn't even feel like it. You, you just were bobbing up and down, and you look, and you realize how you drifted, how gradual, how, how almost imperceptible it was to drift. And that's what we've got to be careful of, folks. That's why this message is so practical and applicable to where we are today, even though this message was given to this church of Ephesus a couple thousand years ago. All of us are susceptible to drifting to gradually departing from our relationship with Christ and just allowing other things to creep into our life like any relationship and become more important than our relationship with Christ. Because our relationship with Christ is built the same way any other relationship is. If we stop talking to Him, 
If we stop communicating, we stop spending time with him, guess what? You can't have a good friendship if you stop talking to that person, if you stop spending time, you never see him ever again, you never talk to him, guess what? You're going to end up drifting away, and that emotional and physical and spiritual attachment you have with that person is going to drift and, and, and be gone eventually. You've got to pay attention. You and I have to work on our relationships, or they end up sort of drifting away from us. And Jesus is saying the same thing is true with me. You have to work on it. You have to be willing to spend time with me and communicate to me and and, and love me and, 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 sp and make me a part of your life every day or else that drifting is going to start. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let's be careful that we don't drift away. Let's not neglect. And see, that's what it is a lot. It's just neglect. It's not that we get up and, again, we're purposefully saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, you know, sort of move away from Christ. It doesn't work that way. It's just sort of like... You know, well, we keep filling our schedules up, and uh, we, the day goes through, and guess what? Didn't spend time with Jesus that day. And then, well, okay, I'll, I'll spend time with you tomorrow, Jesus. I, I promise. I'm going to carve out some time, and then the next day goes by, and uh, we neglected it again. Too many things came in, and, and guess what? After a few days, it becomes easier and easier, and then pretty soon, weeks go by, months go by, and then, wow, we've left our first love. And then what begins to happen is, we can still be involved in ministry. We can still be working and serving the Lord and all of this, but we're doing it in our own power and our own strength. We're not doing it out of a love relationship that we have built with Him. One of the things I want you to see tonight is this. and you can uh, In Mark's Gospel, I think it's chapter 3, I don't know the verse. Let me find it real quick. Because I want you to reference this. This is, this is a key verse in discipleship. So I don't want to miss this. I think it's in Mark chapter 3. Yeah, Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Here's what it says. When Jesus called his disciples, he called them to be with him. Don't miss that. Then, the Bible says, he would send them to preach. <coughs> now, why that's important is that's a model, again, or an example for how it should be with us. Not that necessarily he's calling us all to preach, but he's sending us to minister. The important thing is notice first. He first wants us to be with Him. Then as we get energized through our relationship with Him, as, as we get built up, as we get refreshed by being with Him, then we go out in the power that we have and the refreshment that we have through our relationship with Him in order to minister. You see, first, here's, here's the way it is. I know, I'm running out of boardroom here. It's, but I wanted to keep this too. Fellowship leads to ministry. That's the biblical model. And so many people get involved in ministry, 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 but then they neglect their fellowship with Christ and with others. And they begin to serve and work and minister out of an empty spiritual well. And that's why we have what we call burnout in the church and burnout with Christians. Christians who you know maybe were serving the Lord and they were really busy in ministry and you know running this and doing there and all that. And now they're not doing anything. And they say, I'm just burned out. You know why they're burned out? They're burned out because they kept ministering without realizing that they had to spend time at the feet of Jesus and being re-energized and getting their spiritual batteries charged up every day and every week. In fact, that's what the church is all about. 
The church like Cornerstone is a rallying point where we all come together maybe a couple times a week and we get re-energized and we get refreshed so we can get back out there and our spiritual batteries get built back up so that when you leave here, hopefully you're leaving here every Tuesday going, man, I can't wait to get out there. <laughs> Put into practice what I'm learning in the mind and I'm excited about God and His Word. And that's what it is. It's fellowship and then ministry. That's why Jesus, I think, included that story about Mary and Martha in the Bible where Martha's all busy and she's out there in the kitchen and she's getting the dinner ready for Jesus and his disciples and Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary's not lazy. Both those ladies were serving the Lord. But Mary understood what Jesus was saying. Mary understood that in order to effectively serve, i got to sit at Jesus' feet first. Then I can minister more effectively. Martha had lost touch with that. And she just kept ministering but not realizing that her fellowship with her Lord was going to be the, the resource that she needed in order to minister more effectively. And that's why the Bible says when God called his disciples to him, he first called them to be with him, and then he would send them to minister. That's the pattern. That's what he wants with us. we got to spend time with Christ, make him our first love, our first priority, and be re-energized in our communion and our relationship with him, then we can go out there ministering and serving with an overflow of a full spiritual well that Jesus Christ has filled us up. And as we go, we're just, we're just sort of spilling over to other people rather than feeling like, I only have this much to give you and I'm giving you my last stuff. And that's it. Once I give it to you, it's all gone. I don't have any more. I don't have any, anything left in reserve. You see, we've always got to keep our reserve built up, spiritually speaking. How do we do that? by our fellowship with our Savior. By, and they had lost it. What they were doing in Ephesus was just a cold, mechanical, going through the routine of doing what they were doing. Whether it was nursery ministry, or children's ministry, or youth ministry, or you know, taking up the offering, or ushering, or helping park cars, or teaching a class, or whatever. That they were doing all that they were doing, and they were able to do it, but they were able to do it in their own power and their own strength without ever having sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He understood how important that was because then if you go back to Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to just stop here in just a moment. He says, because you've departed from your first love, then verse 5, you need to remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. You don't realize how far you've fallen because you let your relationship with me go way down on the scale of importance. And all this service and putting these false prophets to the test and working hard and serving and all that doesn't make up for not making me your first priority. Wow, that's a message that we need to hear and be reminded of today. God wants us to do what we do because we love Him and out of love. That's why I share with you, that's why this whole free will thing can get so sticky. Because on one hand, we love the fact that God gave us free will, but on the other hand, we understand that us and many others suffer because God gave people free will. But the thing is, if God didn't do it that way, then He would have people who just did what He wanted to do because we had to, not because we want to. And God doesn't want you to come here on Tuesday night because you feel you have to. Because somebody's putting you on a guilt trip. Because, you know, you feel, well, you know, I feel like... No, God wants you to be here because you want to be here. God wants you to be at church on Sunday because you want to. God wants you to open up your Bible every day and read a, a few verses and, and really be energized from His Word because you want to. 
God wants you to spend time in prayer with Him, talking about things to Him because you want to, not because you are motivated by guilt. You see, I don't know about you, but I've had enough motivation by guilt in my life. And God doesn't do that. You know, God will not motivate us that way. It's a positive thing. It's, it's look how great your life can be and all that you could be and all that you could do. It's out there. Don't you want that? And it's either yes or no. So he says, repent. In other words, the word repent just simply means, and this goes along with Lynn's method, 180. Just turn around. You're going this way. Repent means turn around 180 degrees and go the other way. Because Jesus says you're headed down the wrong track. And then he says also, well, the first thing I should say, let me back up verse 5, because I skipped remember. Remember first, then repent. And that word remember just simply means Go back in your mind to when you were first became a Christian. How great that was. I don't know about you, but it's exciting to be around new Christians. I mean, they're just so glad they're saved and their sins are forgiven and they want to tell people. and they, They're just like, if you'd have seen Meet the Staff last night. We had Meet the Staff last night. I mean, there's people there. Their eyes are just... It's priceless just to see the expression on their face like, you don't know how much going to a church like this means to us and our family. I mean... They just, they're just so excited to be in a place that teaches the Bible. And they're just, they just, they can't explain it. That's so great. And Jesus is saying, hey, remember what that was like? It's sort of like, for those of us that are even, you know, married or ever fallen in love or whatever, remember what it was like when you first start dating? You know? Nothing she did ever bothered you. Why does it bother you now? You know? Remember how, you know, you guys, it just, ooh, everything was just great, you know? Remember, that's sort of, that, that first love, when you first fall in love, what that was like, Jesus saying, guess what? You started to take me for granted. Just like we can tend to take anything or anybody for granted over a period of time. And Jesus says, be careful that you don't take this love relationship with me for granted. Remember how it was when you first came into a relationship with me. Go back in your mind and remember how precious that was and how excited you were to be a Christian and to know the things that you knew and to know God loved you and you were going to heaven and your sins were forgiven. He says, remember that. And then repent and change and get back. And then he says, do the deeds you did at first. Go back and repeat the things that you did when you were first a Christian. Those things that you did that just really kept that, that love relationship alive that you've sort of neglected over the last couple of weeks or months or years. You just sort of let it slide. You just sort of let it drift by. Don't let that drift by. Because your relationship with me is the absolute most important thing. That even... Any ministry, no matter how great it is and no matter how much it is, does not make up for the love relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so that's why Jesus says to this church, lost love equals lost light. And that's why then he says, if you do not remember and repent and do the deeds you did at first, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place if you do not repent. Sad thing, the church at Ephesus no longer exists. God had to come in and remove their lampstand because they lost their first love. You know, there always is a tendency, and this is what we have to be careful of as a church, as individuals, is 
everything sort of in our society degenerates over a period of time. It usually doesn't get better, which is contrary to what the evolutionists teach, that things are actually getting better rather than getting worse. I don't know about you, but I don't see that myself. Um, but usually that's the way it is. Over a period of time, if we don't watch it, things will just gradually sort of... And that's why, again, you have examples in our country even, just our country, of churches. It used to be on fire for God, and people were, were coming to know Christ, and people were filling the pews for Bible studies, and they were having Bible studies like this, and, and people were growing, and, and there was life and excitement, and now they have maybe ten people coming in this huge building, and they're about ready to shut their doors. Do you realize that there's a lot of churches in our country right now that are getting ready to shut their doors because there's no life there anymore? <coughs> Jesus has come in and the lampstand is gone because they allowed too many other things to get in their life besides their focus on their relationship with Christ. And that's not only true of a church, a whole body of Christians, but that's true of us as well. If we're truly going to shine out there in this world... The most important thing is to just keep our relationship with Christ what it is. Everything else will take care of itself. That's why Jesus said, Seek ye first, Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will take care of themselves. Jesus is saying, You just focus on your relationship with me, and all those other things in your life will take care of themselves. So the church at Ephesus obviously did not heed the warning of Jesus. And their lampstand has been removed from the city of Ephesus. Let's go down to verse 7. I want to end with this tonight, because this deals with what I had put on the board a long time ago. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Many times throughout the Gospels, when Jesus would be teaching, he would be telling the people that were listening to him, listen carefully. And he wasn't saying, clean the wax out of your ears so you can hear me better. That's not what he meant. The concept of hearing in the Bible goes much beyond the physical ability to hear. It goes through four stages. And these stages I have put up here for us tonight. Because what God wants us to do when he says, I want you as a church to truly hear what I'm saying, is to go through these progressions. First of all, communication. Listening to God. I have to ask myself, am I, am I truly listening to God? Is my heart open to what God wants to say to me? Sad stories, many times in the Old Testament, where God would be speaking, and even his prophets would be just not listening, and he'd have to almost, like, you know, for God, yell, Hey, it's me! Will somebody listen to me? Will somebody respond to me? Because God wants us to respond to him, you know? And sad thing is, there are many people in this world today that's not listening to God. They've got so much going on in their ears and so much noise from the world that when God is speaking, they can't hear Him speak. That's why it's so important for us when we come to the Word of God, whether it's in the Mind Tuesday night or our own personal devotions or we come to church on Sunday, that we have taken time to try as best we can to get rid of all the distractions in our mind and in our heart. So that when we come to, to church and before God to listen to God, we truly can focus on God rather than having all these other things that are distracting us. That's why a lot of times people say, I didn't get anything out of that. Well, maybe it's because you've got so much else going on in there that you really couldn't listen to God. Secondly, the next step is understanding what God says. Obviously, God wants us to understand what he says. And that comes in time. You, you will grow in your understanding. I promise you. 
If you continue to make your time in God's Word a priority in your life, you're going to just continue to grow in your understanding of God's Word. There's no formula. There's no special secret. I've just been doing this for 35 years. So if you do anything for 35 years, hopefully you've come to some kind of a, you know, a little bit of an understanding. That's what it is. It's just, it's just growing. It's understanding. And again, God gives us teachers to help us to understand some things and to maybe sort of jumpstart us. But please, don't make this the end all. Go home and look at these and meditate on these verses for yourself. Then next, here comes an important one. It does no good for God to tell us something if we truly don't believe it or trust in it, because if we don't believe it, we're not going to live it. We only live what we believe. If I really don't believe it, then it's not going to make any difference in the way I live my life. Let me give you a very unspiritual illustration. Okay? Very unspiritual illustration. Michael Jordan, probably the greatest basketball player that ever lived, comes in here tonight and challenges me to a game of one-on-one basketball out there. Okay? And you guys have the opportunity to earn a few extra dollars by gambling. <laughs> I told you this was really unspiritual. And, and, and putting your money on who you thought would win the one-on-one basketball game. Well, if you believe that Michael Jordan is going to beat me in one-on-one basketball, then guess who you're going to put your money on? Because you're, you're going to live what you believe. What you believe is going to affect the way you live. Therefore, if you think Michael Jordan's a better basketball player than me, you're going to put your money on Michael Jordan. You see, that's why trusting what God says, under, uh, uh, believing what God says is really key to living what God says. Because if I really don't believe it, you know, I can say I believe it, but if I really don't believe it, it's not going to be transferred into my everyday life. So I've got I to gotta trust it. I've got to believe it. And then I've got to be transformed by what God says. Because ultimately, the ultimate goal of biblical instruction and of spending time in God's Word and spending time with God is to become more like God in the ways that we can be God. Again, we're never going to be God, but we can be loving like God. We can be faithful like God. We can be merciful like God. We can be long-suffering like God. You know, all those communicable attributes that God can pass to human beings, we can become like God in those ways. And that, that's how we let the Word of God change us from the inside out. And that, when, when, when Jesus says to His church, Hear what I'm telling you. It's not just, yeah, I get it. No. It's listening, it's understanding, it's trusting, and it's being transformed by what he says. And then notice this great ending here, and we'll close with this, and then I'll open up for any... He says, To the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Wow. What a reward. Paradise is going to be restored by God to the one who conquers. That word is a very familiar word to people who have tennis shoes today because it's the Greek word Nike, or we say Nike. That's the, that's the word, that's what Nike means. It means conqueror, okay? The Bible says in Romans, we have become more than conquerors. Through who? Through Christ, who loved us. That's who the conquerors are. We don't conquer in our own power or strength. We become conquerors through Jesus Christ. Jesus says to his church, those who conquer through me, I'll give you a chance to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Wow, that's exciting. That's very exciting.
But you know what? We've got to be careful that we don't drift away from our relationship with God, that we remember to put Him first place and not to neglect our first love. We've got a few minutes. I quit a few minutes early to allow for some questions or comments or all of that. Yes? I'd just like to go back to one thing really quickly. Just go up this for a minute. Could, could Judas have not done what he did if God is the author of history and he knows everything, then how did Judas have an opportunity to not be Judas? I explain that by God's foreknowledge. In other words, Judas had the free will to choose to follow Christ and not betray him. But God, knowing how things are going to turn out before they happen, knew that Judas would not make that choice. And that's why he could say what he was saying. In other words, God knows what choices we're going to make tomorrow before we ever get up. God knows what's going to happen to us tomorrow. That doesn't prevent us from making those choices. It's just God knows what those choices are going to be. I think that Judas had every reason and and every opportunity to follow Christ. In fact, one of the great stories in the Bible is that Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he washed Judas' feet. I think he was reaching out to Judas at the very end and saying, Judas, it really didn't have to be like this. I want you to know I loved you to the very end. But Judas refused. And you know, to be honest with you, that's the way it's going to be with a lot of people. God's trying to reach out to them in love, but no matter how much he reaches out to them, they just say, nope, no thank you. I'll do things my way. I'll live my life the way I want to. And that's their choice. But God knows what that choice is going to be. A good question. Yes? You and I have previously had a short conversation, and I'm trying to understand this. Um, this is obviously... Um, the first love, this is obviously a Ephesus Christian. They had a first love, they had the love of God. And I, I'm having a hard time understanding where it says, um, to him who overcome, in other words, to him that goes back to that first love, he will have uh, the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. What about those that don't overcome? We're talking about Christians here. Right. So, do you follow my question as far as, you see that in the positive, but what in the negative? That means they're not going to see the tree of life? No, I I think that what he's talking about at the end of verse 7 is a reward for overcoming, but that doesn't prevent them from entering heaven if they truly know Christ as their Savior. Because if you go back to, if you keep your finger there in Revelation 2, because this is a very good question, go back to 1 John chapter 4. Chapter 5, excuse me. The only prerequisite for being an overcomer or a Nike, a conqueror, according to John in 1 John 5, 5, is simply belief that Jesus is the Son of God, which is the only requirement for salvation. It's not to, it's not to keep at a certain level. I mean, certainly Jesus is saying if you, if you leave your first love, then you're going to lose the light and I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. But that doesn't mean they lost their salvation. Because 1 John 5, 5 says, Now who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
the only, the only prerequisite for overcoming the world and conquering the world and being a Nike, according to the Bible, is one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So I look at that, Mary Alice, more as you lost some reward because you chose not to go back to your first love. Remember, he doesn't say they lost their first love. He says they left their first love. And I believe that's significant. If they would have had a chance to lose their first love and have lost a relationship with Christ, I think he could have clearly stated that. He doesn't say they lost their first love. He says you have left your first love. You departed. I didn't depart from you. You departed from me. And because you were not willing to repent, I've got to come in, remove your lampstand, and because of that, you're going to lose some reward when you get to heaven. But you're still going to get there if truly you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now how this is in a language, and I don't want to get, if you look this up, it's called a litotes. Anybody an English major in here? Oh good. <laughs> a litotes is, is describing a positive by using a negative. Let me illustrate it this way. By using this, this, and that's what the Bible does in the book of Revelation with these phrases. If I say to you over the phone, that I am dealing with no, no small problem. What am I really saying? Got I got a big problem. It's called a litotes. In other words, it's, it's a way to describe something by using its opposite. And I think what he's saying there is that, you know, like over, I know the passage you were talking about, wiping your name out of the book of life, is really what he's saying is, there's no way that will happen. He's using what's called a litotes. He's saying, unlike in ancient history where when people died, they would wipe their names and erase their names off of the rolls of the cities, he's saying, I will not do that to you. And so I look at that that way, and that's the way I interpret it. Yes? But in Matthew chapter 7, he makes it sound it's a lot more difficult than, than that <coughs> when he says, enter through a narrow gate, only a few will find it. And then further down, where he says, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do great works for you? And Right, but notice he says at the end, why? Because I never knew you. You had no personal relationship with me. You see, the narrow gate there is simply a relationship with Christ. And the reason why that's narrow is because people want to come to God every other way except through Jesus. In other words, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Well, if you study world religions and you study all these things, there's all kinds of different supposed ways to get to God. Jesus, and the Bible claims, there's only one way. Exclusive. Narrow. But people want to go another way. Why? Because all the other ways give me the credit. Because I worked to get there. I became good enough. I did enough good things. I can take credit for it. That's why Christianity is so much different than any other, because it's based upon grace. Because I didn't, have, I didn't earn it. I can't take credit for it. God did it all. He gets all the credit for it. And that's why all those others can line up, and they're all the wide ways, because they're all other ways to try to get to God. You see, they're ways where man is trying to get to God. Christianity is God came down and reached down to man and says, I, I'm reaching out to you. All you got to do is receive the gift. Other religions and whatnot, they try to work their way up to God. That's what the Tower of Babel was all about in the book of Genesis, chapter 11 where people were trying to, you know, send up the God. But good, good stuff. And again, I'm not going to totally answer it in this context, but I can, I can give it a start and, and, and give it a try.
Yes, one more. Um, you said a while ago that uh, there are, we can hear either two spirits, either the spirit of God or the spirit of the evil God. Right. But my question is, if I have free will and God gave me intelligence, am I, can I also hear myself? And my reason for saying that is, before man came and Lucifer was living with God. Right. And then, who did he hear? He, he when, when he said, I want to, I want to... Be like God. Yeah, I want to... Right. No, you're right, and that's a good point, in the sense that <coughs> even we tell ourselves lies. So, yeah, we have to be careful that even what's coming from within us isn't ultimately coming from another source other than God. Uh, that's true. Great point. Uh, be careful of the lies you tell yourself, okay? Because ultimately, they're not coming from God. A great book, and now I promise I'll close in prayer. Can I recommend a book to you? It's like six or seven bucks, probably. It's a little paper called Telling Yourself the Truth by William Backus. I'll write his name down. Bacchus, it's spelled B-A-C-K-U-S. The book is called Telling Yourself the Truth. It's going to be well worth uh, six or seven dollars. It probably is on Christian Book or Amazon. Telling Yourself the Truth. I can't talk and write at the same time, as you can say. All right? Excellent book. You know what that book's all about? The lies that we have told ourselves over the years. The lies that we've accepted to other people. And that's, again, why it's so important to study the Word of God, because what that book is reminding us of is what the Bible is telling us. We've got to replace the lies that we're telling ourselves and the lies we've heard others tell us with the truth of God's Word. That goes back to Romans 12, too, about transforming our mind, renewing our mind by saturating our mind with the Word of God. Okay, guys, I don't have any more. My tank is out. You guys are great. Let's pray. Thanks for coming. Hope you'll come back and bring a friend with you next time. Father, we thank you so much for, Lord, just being patient with us. And, Lord, we just confess to you tonight that uh, we need to pay attention to our relationship with you. And if nothing else, Lord, I pray that we would just leave here just realizing how much you love us. And, Lord, you want to spend time with us many times more than we do with you. And you want to build a relationship with us. And you just want to be such a part of our lives. And I just pray that we would desire that as well that we would want as much of you in our life as anything else. Because, Lord, that's, that's really what it's all about. Help us, not like the Ephesian church, to drift away from our first love. Keep you first place in our life. Keep you the priority of our life. Father, we want to just shine as light and be a, a lighthouse and a lampstand. And just help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a great week. You too. See you next Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.